Welcome to the Acario podcast with your hosts, Oliver Cowlishaw, myself. And no, it is not the Avatar. It is not Agent 47. It is the man himself, Jane Malach. And today we are continuing our series on how to get your shit together, which in case you have not caught the previous episodes, well, you should probably go do that. And But the idea here is when we're talking about improving one's life in general, like just leveling up your life quality, leveling up yourself as a human being in general, where do you start? And the How to Get Your Shit Together series is our answer to that question. Where do you start? What are the three most effective things to do to make a huge difference in your life across the different dimensions of, what was it? Physical. <laughs> Physical. Emotional. emotional. Mental, social, financial, and virtue and meaning. So today we are at part three, which is mental. So the idea is you want to develop your mind. You want to level up your brain power. How do you do that? What are the three most effective things to do? And the first one is read books. Hmm. So simply making a habit of reading books is, it's, it's a bit like the, the thing we talked about with exercise. You know, I feel like any amount of exercise is better than no exercise. Any amount of any additional movement you do is is going to benefit you. And going from zero to a little bit is already a dramatic improvement. Hmm. And I feel like that about reading books, where of course you can you can talk a lot about you know what are the best books to read. Obviously, not not every book is great. And you can also talk about a lot about, well, how do you read books? How do you take notes? What do you do to retain everything you learn? And so on and so forth. There's a lot of optimization that you can think about and consider. But that's not where you need to start. You mm. don't need to be worried at all about optimally maximizing your learning and retention from reading and so on. It's just a, a habit of reading. If you spend 20 minutes a day reading or 30 minutes a day or an hour a week reading, that's already going to level up your life significantly. And for me, the reason that this is the first of the three things for leveling up your mind is just that in my life, it's, it's pretty clear that reading has like the highest return on investment of, of anything I've ever done, both for the investment of, of money because books are like shockingly cheap. If you think about like the amount of value you can get out of a good book, and the thing costs anything from like five to twenty dollars usually. It's just crazy sometimes. I mean, I'm I'm continually astonished at how much value I can get out of books for for how little they cost. But also in terms of my time investment, I I rarely read a book where I feel like that wasn't worth my time. I also have to say, you know, if a book is rubbish, I don't necessarily read all of it. Mm -hmm. But very, very often, I'm just so thankful for having encountered this book and having encountered these ideas and just, yeah, I'm just continually astonished at how much value is in books. I mean, I can, I can say the same thing. I mean, we've had conversations like this, obviously not on a podcast, but I've, I've mentioned that it's, for, for me, reading, listening to audiobooks as, and, just, and reading in general and just exposing myself to ideas of people who I would just otherwise would have never came into contact with at all. For me, it's, it's as if it allowed me a series of 
choices in my life that would otherwise, would otherwise have been completely unconscious to me. I wouldn't have been able to choose them. So growing up, I would have had, the only options I would have had were based on my, my family conditioning, my societal conditioning and stuff. Um, just ways of seeing the world and ways of thinking would have been based around, you know, that very mm -hmm. narrow bandwidth of ways of viewing the world and stuff. But I started to read about like Eastern mysticism and these ideas and stuff like Alan Watts and whatnot. And if I'd not started reading this stuff, I wouldn't just, how would I have ever come across those ideas? And those ideas gave me, they opened up doorways for me to view the world in different ways and stuff. It's just, I can honestly say that I just wouldn't have been the same. And for the, for, you know, for the sake of a $5 book mm. every now and then, it's just like, it really is super high leverage. Yeah. And so we are, in this context, we're talking about, about nonfiction books. But I also want to mention that even reading fiction uh, upgrades your, your mind in a significant way. Um, and because even reading fiction, I mean, basically, one of the reasons that I think people are so captivated by storytelling is because that is one of the original forms of, of learning and teaching that we have. And so generally, stories do contain some kind of ideas or teachings. That's kind of the purpose of a story, or that's part of the purpose of a story anyway. And even reading uh, fiction, even reading stories of fictional characters and so on helps develop empathy. So any reading, again, it's like, we can talk about optimization, but any reading is better than no reading. And, but yeah, nonfiction, I'm, I'm, I mainly read nonfiction and it's just one of those things, like you say, where you, you can have someone who spends their entire life, they spend decades studying some topic and they travel to all corners of the earth to, to learn more about something. And they pour all of that into a book and I can get so much of that person's life work in, this, in the span of like eight hours or something. Mm. It's just such a crazy knowledge transfer. And also it, it, I often think about how reading and writing are just the most amazing technologies, right? We can just, we can just do this weird communication across time and space by, by putting some squiggles on, on pages. That's crazy. So yeah, reading, as you can tell, I'm a huge fan. Also one of the values of reading, and it's specifically reading books that I recommend because books are still largely outside of the information bubbles that most of us live in now. So this is, you know, I bet people listening to this are familiar with this concept, at least in passing, but like on the internet, because of personalization, everybody lives in a bubble. So you're constantly being shown messages that are tailored to your interests. And so, you know, one person's social media feed looks totally different from another person's social media feed. And even one person's search results for the same keyword for the same term can look different from a different person's search results. And without, without that being obvious and without us being aware of it, we are moving in these highly confined bubbles of information. And this is obviously one of the huge problems that it's basically a global problem, right? Because you, can, you can't have a shared basis of, of agreement or, or even reality. We're basically losing a shared base of reality mm. because everybody's pushed so far into these information bubbles. And yeah, obviously it's a huge problem. So reading you do on the internet for the purposes of what we're talking about doesn't count because 
unless you take drastic measures to break out of the bubbles, and I'm talking really drastic measures, it is difficult to unbubble yourself on the internet. So unless you take drastic measures, then you are in a bubble and you're not aware of the confines of it. Um, and that is changing your, your view. And information inside a bubble and information that is, that is being alg algorithmically presented to you to increase your engagement is not useful information. It is, even if it is good information, like collectively, this is a problem. And books are largely outside of these bubbles, which is to say, of course, you can read books that all confirm your worldview. You can read a lot of books and, and keep a narrow worldview. And it's easy to imagine, you know, if you take any strong ideology, you know, I don't know, if, you, if you're an evangelical Christian, you can read books on different topics, but make sure that all of them are written by highly pious evangelical Christian authors mm. and you can kind of be in that safe confined space where you will definitely never encounter something that like rattles you a bit you know mm. of course that's possible but it's it's just even if you go out of your way to read only books within a within a tightly kind of defined space you will still have a greater diversity of information and experience than than just browsing the internet as an you know as a normal human being so um, and, and most people don't make that kind of effort. So it is, yeah, even, even with, with almost no effort made, you will automatically be exposed to a range of ideas that is, that isn't confined to the bubbles that we're usually in and isn't algorithmically like groomed, um, in, in the way that most information that we encounter on screens is. So that is one of the, the huge values of books along with also it is long form content. And that's another thing, right? We're generally, we're always being fed short form content. We're being fed snippets of things to get emotional responses at a, at a faster rate. Hmm. And, and books are outside of that. A book is not feeding you a dopamine hit every two sentences. Um, and that is something that's really good for, for also untangling your brain from that type of interaction with, with information. So it's, so it's not only the knowledge that you get in from a book. It's the, the very act of reading itself is in itself beneficial. Mm -hmm. And that also goes for listening to a book. As long as you're actually listening, um, you know, I, I listen to a lot of books as audiobooks, and that's no problem. As long as you're, it's not just background noise. That would be, you know, if, you, if you're listening while you're doing something that occupies most of your attention, then, well, then you're not getting the benefit anymore. But if you're just sitting and listening or walking and listening, doing nothing else, then that is that counts too. Well, this is the love-hate relationship I kind of have with audiobooks. It's like, I, it's, it's, it's easy for me to listen to an audiobook. And then when I go back to think of what did I get out of that chapter or what did I learn from this 55 minutes worth of listening, I, it could be really vague mm -hmm. because it's, mm -hmm. if I'm doing something else, I'm not... I'm not, I'm not paying full attention, which is why I'm kind of, I'm in this weird space where it's like, I've, I've got benefit from audiobooks in the past, but it's very, it lends itself very easily to me to just multitasking and not really focusing on it. So yep. yeah, that was something I was going to bring up at some point mm -hmm. was that, I guess, what do you, what do you recommend? If someone came to you asking audiobook or, or written, what would you say to them? Yeah, as long as as long as you're giving 
this thing your full attention, it doesn't matter. Mm. But if the reason you don't want to read, so look, for me, the, one of the reasons I prefer audiobooks is because I like to move while listening. Because I'm already sitting more than enough. I'm already being sedentary more than enough. So I don't really want to sit and read a book. And so I'd rather go for a walk and read a book. But then when I'm going for a walk, that's all I'm doing. I'm walking and listening. I'm not, yeah, I'm just not doing anything else that occupies my attention. And obviously I can walk without like spending a lot of time thinking about putting one foot in front of the other. And I'm also not going exploring a new place that I've never seen before. You know, I walk through the park that's right next to where I live, where I've been a hundred times. So there's no extra stimulation there either. Um, so that I can actually listen. That makes um, sense. Yeah. So that's what I would recommend. But also, I mean, and sometimes I do just like lie on the couch or sit on the couch or something and, and re or and listen just because it's kind of more relaxing than mm. than reading, especially again after a long day of looking at, at screens. But again, it only works if I if I give my full attention to the book. To go further on the on the thing we talked about with the bubbles, I also recommend, but again, we're we're getting into the optimization space here already, which is not necessary. That the minimum effective dose is spend like an hour a week reading, mm. right? But also to, to get more of it, I also um, recommend that you deliberately seek out alternative perspectives and make sure that you deliberately step out of the bubble. So for example, I got really interested in nutrition as it relates to health a few years ago. And the first few books I read on the topic were all like heavily indicating that a plant-based diet is the way to go. And we're really heavily suggesting that, look, you know, animal products are probably just not good for you. And in general, plant-based diet is the way to go. And, and I learned lots of valuable stuff there, but I thought, you know, that's, I wonder what the other perspective looks like. Hmm. Because sure, there are these books written by these doctors who have all this experience and, and are citing all, these, all this evidence and so on. They're making this case. But I'm sure there are also books also written by doctors, also citing a lot of evidence that they're telling people to eat meat. And, and I wanted to see that perspective. And so I sought out deliberately to, to get some books that, yeah, that make the point or that, that are more pro-animal um, products. Hmm. And, and at the time, I was already vegetarian, so I wasn't necessarily trying to defend my own. I wasn't going to eat meat either way, right? But... Still, I didn't, I didn't want to just confirm stuff that I, I'm already more comfortable with than most people, you know, because obviously a lot of people, or if you're used to eating animal products, someone tells you, oh, this is unhealthy, you shouldn't do it, then that'd be very uncomfortable. Or for me, it was like, okay, that's fine. That, that's, that suits how I live. Um, but I, I didn't want to simply confirm those beliefs. And so I wanted to have a look at what does the other side look like? What do people argue? And especially like all the way to like keto where it's like, oh, I basically only eat meat and maybe some plant fat and maybe a nut or so every once in a while. And is it, what arguments are they making? Like, what does this look like? How does it compare? And that is, that's really useful to understand. Yeah, to understand both sides of a story. And I think books can do that more effectively than basically any other medium. I mean, yeah, that, but that interests me how you had that the sort of foresight to want to do that in the first place to, to 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 hear this side of it and be like okay this is this is basically saying that a plant-based diet is the way to go but then actually have the desire to not sit in that sort of echo chamber as it were and just and actually seek another viewpoint 
And using nutrition as an example, that's like, that's an online Facebook debate that's just continuing to this day. Mm. And the idea, the stance on that is to look at both sides of the coin. I'm interested in that because that's really, I mean, as far as I can tell, that's actually pretty damn uncommon. Mm. Whereas what's more common is that someone will hear something and then their goal won't be to understand the full site, the full picture. It will be, right, I've now made my mind up and now all the reading I'm going to be doing and all the, 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 the Facebook back and forth, I'm going, to, I'm going to be basically defending my position and that's my goal. Yeah. But I'm interested as to why, and this might be slightly off topic, but I don't know. Why is it, do you think that you had that sort of, that's that sort of inclination to, to want to see the other side of the coin. Is it some pursuit of um, you know greater depth of knowledge, or is it, or what is that? I'm curious about that. Well, I mean, it actually leads perfectly into the second point. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, the the reason is basically the second point. So the first, our first most important thing to do is reading. The second most important thing to do is get familiar with bias. Hmm. So a bias is basically a a systematic error in thinking or error in perception. And so this is a, a term, so we're talking about a psychological bias. And the human brain is a bias creating machine, right? There are hundreds of biases that, are, that we are subject to all the time. Now, and, and so my recommendation is learn about biases. And you can, you can just, type in psychological biases in, in, in your preferred search engine. And there's a, there's a pretty extensive Wikipedia thing on it, and there's books on it, and there's loads of blog posts, and there's nice posters as well. You know, you can see like these posters that list all the different biases by category and so on. Like in infographics, that's yeah, like I've seen yeah. a couple of them. And, and really my recommendation is just like, spend some time digging into this. And it doesn't even have to be a lot of time. Just like give yourself the time to be astonished at how much of this stuff goes wrong. So, and, and let me talk about some examples of biases. And in fact, the thing that, you're, that you were just mentioning here is, is one of my favorite biases. Like I'm gonna tell you about this now and, and then you're gonna see it everywhere. You, you know, this is everywhere. This is the confirmation bias. So the confirmation bias simply states that in general, human beings, we always seek information and we notice information that confirms our existing beliefs or worldview, right? So just like you said, if I believe that eating meat is bad, then I will automatically, without, without any effort on my part, I will notice anything that confirms this idea much more strongly than anything that, that seems to suggest the opposite. And so confirmation bias. A great example of this, of one of the simplest tests, um, and obviously all of these biases we're talking about, this is all like well-researched stuff where um, psychologists are like really good at tricking people <laughs> into, into, into like systematically exposing these errors basically. And this is one of the simplest studies for confirmation biases. I'm sure you've seen this kind of, you know, on an IQ test or, or any test like that where there's a series of numbers and you have to continue that series. You know? So it's like one, three, five, seven, and you go, okay, I think the, and then the question is, what's the rule here? Okay. So sometimes the test is just like write the next number. Mm -hmm. you go, okay. Well, the next number must be, you know, the next uh, 
the next odd number, basically. Um, and in some cases, the test is tell us what the rule is. So rather than just, so in this test, it was basically like the, the computer shows you a series of numbers and you have to, your answer is what is the rule? And what you can do is you can test your rule by inputting a number and it then tells you if that's correct or not. So, and so let's take a very simple example of the series you're shown, obviously it'd be more complicated to trick people into thinking they're smart, right? But the, the, the series numbers you're shown is something like one, three, five. And the question is, okay, what's next? And so then you go, it seems like we're just adding plus two every time, right? And so you, you test, okay, is the next one seven? Yes. Is the one after that nine? Yes. Okay. So you write down the rule plus two, or you write down the rule, the next odd number. And you feel great about it. You're like, I've, I've nailed it. And you, you go on. So and the question is, what, what's the problem with this? Well, Everybody got this wrong, or almost everybody, because the actual rule is any positive number, okay? So if you ask the computer, is four the correct answer? Yes. Is 5,000 the correct answer? Yes. Is 57 the correct? Sure. <laughs> any positive number is a valid answer, right? Right. But the only way to find out is to test if your theory is wrong. Like what everybody does is they test if their theory is right. Okay, so I, I enter numbers that according to my rule would be the next numbers. And if the computer confirms, yes, these are correct answers, I'm like, yeah, this is fine. What nobody does is, okay, the rule I've come up with is plus two. So what if I do plus three? If the computer says wrong, that confirms my theory. If the computer says, yeah, this is a valid answer too, that trashes my theory immediately. But nobody does that. Nobody thinks to test if their answer is wrong. Okay, right. and this is just a very simple confirmation bias thing. And I have to say, you know, this is also one of those things where when I came across this test, I had already known about the confirmation bias for years. I was already like a big fan of the confirmation bias. And I fell for this immediately, <laughs> right? <laughs> I got this wrong immediately. And, and that's the thing about biases. Like knowing about biases doesn't make you any less biased. Hmm. It's, yeah, you're still... Um, your brain is still a bias-producing machine, even if you know all about biases. Now, this is also the problem with anecdotal evidence. So if we take, and, and health is actually a great example of this, because obviously health is highly complex. And so what happens is, so maybe I have a belief that says like, I don't know, let's say if you eat um, legumes, that is bad for your skin. And I have this belief, or maybe I read that somewhere, and what will immediately happen is I, I will think about, oh, that's true. You know, a few weeks ago we had Mexican food and the next day I had a zit. And, and I will immediately notice it in other people as well. Right? I will go, oh, uh, there's another, you, you had beans, you had beans yesterday and your skin isn't that great. <laughs> you know, you'll immediately notice that. What you don't notice is all the exceptions. What, you, what doesn't come to mind is all the times you had legumes and your skin was fine right? Yeah. And so it's because it's just much easier to, to be like, oh yeah, here's an anecdote. Here's a story of someone says, or, and this is usually what happens with health fads, right? So let's say we have, and I hope I made this up or maybe someone's already claiming this. I don't know. I just literally tried to make something up here. <laughs> I don't think there's any connection just to be clear <laughs> between legumes and your skin quality, right? But, just disclaimer. Yeah. 
So I literally just made this up, but I'm sure you can find someone on Instagram who believes this. But right, so let's say someone starts this idea of, oh, it's this is the problem. You have to stop eating beans. That's good for your skin. And then you'll have stories of people going, I tell you what, my skin used to be terrible. And then I stopped eating beans and now everything is better. And again, you'll have like, you'll see two or three of those stories. And now you're completely convinced this must be true. I mean, mm. come on. I mean, come on. Someone said it on Instagram. <laughs> and then I saw several examples of dramatic transformations. What more evidence do you need? But never mind the like billions of people <laughs> who eat beans all the time, <laughs> who some of them have great skin, some of them have terrible skin, right? <laughs> So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you can apply that to the health health fads are I mean, seems seems to me health fads are a great example of this. I mean, we we laughed about this a few months ago, didn't we? About that health fad. Yeah. <laughs> per, perineum sunning. Perineum sunning. Yeah. Wake up in the morning at five AM, go outside, sun their arse, basically. Yeah. yeah. And that's like these this is the reason why I feel great. And what they weren't paying attention attention to was like how they were spending their mornings before that. Yeah. <laughs> Probably just wake straight up, get a coffee, go to the, get in the car and drive somewhere. Um, so it's like, we're not paying attention to that. It must be the sun that's doing it. It's like, maybe it's just the fact that you got up a bit earlier, you know, you're doing something that you deem is positive. You know, you're getting outside in general. You, maybe you're having a slower morning and you're not so stressed. Maybe that could be it. Maybe it's not the fact that you've got sun on your butthole. Yeah. And even just, maybe it's just sun. Period. In general. You know, maybe sun in the morning is good. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and this is also, I mean, this is kind of a related problem is that we can't tell the difference between correlation and causation. Mm. We just can't tell the difference between two things coinciding and one thing causing another thing. And, and it's the same with the beans, you know, it's like, okay, maybe the thing is you, you stop having Mexican food, which was your mo main source of, of beans. And you think, well, this is why my skin got better. But maybe, you know, you're having like deep fried Mexican food with God knows what else. And any of those things could be causing bad skin, right? And, and this is very often the problem, again, with health fads, it's very often the problem where it's just, okay, yes, you, you changed something and you saw some effect. But you also don't know if that's just a regression to the mean. You know, it's like you made a change in your diet when things were really bad. Well, usually what happens after things get really bad is they get better again, you know, even mm -hmm. if you don't do anything. Yeah. It's like things don't just keep getting worse. Uh, generally, things get bad and then they get better and they get bad and they get better. And this is also something you can see now that I've mentioned this. You can see that with health and lifestyle influencers and whatever, um, that they will often, you know, they will often change from fad to fad to fad because what happens is they will try a new thing and then oh my god everything is better i feel so good now and then guess what well, things get bad again you know mm. and so then they're like oh no the the crazy diet i switched to is apparently bad after all so now i'm and then again as it gets worse and worse and worse and worse they go i have to change something they do some other fad and then things get better and they're like oh this is it this is the the solution yeah th so i don't I haven't fully articulated this problem, but I've seen it occasionally in people. Is some, well, first of all, something that fascinates me is, is how can you have an un or a less burdened mind that's not frantically going from one conclusion to the next mm. and your emotions are reacting to this and then to that and then it's like, oh, I'm feeling sad because of this and then I'm happy because this thing happened. <laughs> it's like, how can a person reach a state where 
their mind is is less perturbable by external events or their own thoughts or biases like this. And mm-hmm. and I've seen this quite quite often where this the mind will just be will just be grasping desperately for something that explains something. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, right, okay, this must be it. Okay, I'm going to hang on to this and defend it. And then something else happens that's, that con- contradicts it. It's like, oh my God, I was wrong. Ah. It's just like, <laughs> look, it's just a whirlwind. And I've been in that state myself. Yeah. And I still am occasionally. I, see, I find my mind just grasping for desperately for a conclusion or something that will overcome this problem or whatever. It's just like, wow, how do we overcome that? Because... As you say, the mind is like a confirm, like a, a bias creating machine. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. And and so it is. And I get a bit to that, like how to make use of this, hmm. uh, because like awareness of biases is a good first step. Right. To to also kind of get out of that, um, because it's yeah. Well, we'll get to, we'll get to that. I do want to mention a few other because that was only one so far. <laughs> <laughs> I want to mention a few other biases that are that are really interesting. One of them is commitment bias, which is that the more you invest in something the less you want it or the less willing you are to admit that there's anything wrong with it or that you might have made a bad decision. So this is one of the most important ways. This is why you have hazing in a fraternity, for example. You know, you go through some horrible experience and that gives that deepens your investment in that this is the best fraternity and this is the right thing to do and so on. Mm. And it's also in the how to how to uh, build a cult 101 kind of playbook is that you want people in in any kind of culty environment you want them to uh, gradually make deeper and deeper investments which can be you know Scientology style like you spend more and more money as you go deeper in but it can also be just like you know rituals where you, you know you have to you you cut ties with with family members and friends and you have to shave your head and you have to wear silly robes and you have to do all kinds of stuff where you're putting on you're you're making a deeper and deeper commitment to this thing which ties you closer and closer to it so once you've done all that like once you've given your life savings to the guru and you've shaved your head and you've renounced all your worldly possessions and so on and so forth it's much harder than to admit that, you know, actually this guy is a kook, um, you know, and, and that's why you have these weird situations where someone can be like, oh, you know, I, I saw the guru levitating, but actually you just saw him like hop, you know, mm. it's just, <laughs> but it's just like, it's much harder for you to admit that this wasn't anything special. You want it to be a miracle at that point. It's like the more you've invested in something, the more painful it would be to then be like, okay, that was all mm-hmm. bullshit, basically. Mm-hmm. Th- this is possibly why, so you could probably say that this is why a person might stay in a relationship. Like the longer a person's been in a relationship, even if that relationship, say 10 years down the line, becomes either toxic or dysfunctional in some way, it's like, no, we've, we've been together for all this time. Mm. It's harder to just be like, uh, no, this is, this, is not, um, this is not serving us anymore kind of thing. Yeah. And this is also this is also related to what's called the sunk cost fallacy, where you basically and this is often in a like a, in a financial context, you know, it's like oh, we planned to build this thing and it was supposed to take this long and cost this money, but it's going to cost way more and take way longer. But we've already spent so much money and time, so we have to keep going. It's like, why? 
That's yeah. not a good way to make a decision at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and just to bring up the, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably mention this a few times because I'm still apparently quite salty about the guru situation. Like when I was uh, when I was uh, um, hired that guru, it was really interesting because even though like after a while I'd obviously we spoke about this, but I I learned that this was just not worth the money, mm-hmm. and it seemed that I'm, I'm quite grateful for this that I had the the objectivity towards my own thinking to be able to be like, okay, um, this isn't going to, this isn't working. I should probably step away from this and not invest any more money. But I was in conversation with people that continued to invest thousands and thousands every month, even though it wasn't working. And the, the conversations would be, would be centered around them basically defending the person, defending this guru. It's like, no, no, it it changed my life. It's like, look, you're like, you're like 12 grand in the hole. And it seems that the debt is just deepening. You, you just keep paying this guy more and more and more. It's like, it's, it's just this weird, vicious cycle. Like the more they pay, the more they have to defend him. Exactly. Which is so strange, you know? Yeah. It benefits him so much as well. And you end up defending your own decision, basically, right? Because, yeah, if, you, if this guy charged less money, then it would be much easier to say, well, this is just nonsense, I'm out. Mm-hmm. But because you're making such a big investment, and this is just, uh, again, this is like the fake guru playbook. This is why fake gurus like to sell extremely expensive stuff because then the people who are, yeah, the people who they get with that are making this massive financial commitment. And, and yeah, it's also like if you look at what fake gurus are up to, which, yeah, is now being exposed as kind of a sport on YouTube, which is very funny to see. <laughs> <laughs> it never gets old. <laughs> but then you can see that this is very often what they do is they, they, they use commitment bias in, in many ways to get people in. Mm. Um, and there's there's loads and loads of others. Uh, two more that I want to mention, two more biases I want to mention because they're just so practical, you know, they're like really useful to, to gain awareness of is, the first one is temporal discounting, which is simply that we discount future rewards versus um, instant gratification style rewards. So mm. uh, it's, it's the kind of thing, you know, where, where with with financial examples, you can show this with financial examples as well, but... You know, if I, if I ask you, would you rather have like $10 now or $100 next week? You'll probably be smart enough to be like, well, $100 next week is really good. You know, I should, I should go for that. But when it, comes to, when it comes to like other kinds of payoffs, we are extremely bad at that. And also when the payoffs are further away than next week, you know, for longer term goals, the problem is, and, and everybody is familiar with this, right? We will sacrifice extremely important long term goals for very trivial short-term satisfaction. So it's like, yes, I know that, you know, if I study, then I can get a good grade and I can get the, you know, the job I want and build the career and build the life I want. That's, that's pretty big. But right now I'd rather watch Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the reward of watching Netflix is really minuscule against that, against that distant goal. But because of temporal discounting, you're like, oh yeah, this, you know, the dream life later is not that important, but this show seems interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I think we could all kind of relate to that in some way. And it comes, what comes up for me is the, that marshmallow test, right? Mm -hmm. Is that an example of temporal discounting? Well, it's an example of how difficult it is to resist. So for anyone who's not familiar, right, the, the marshmallow test is the, where you basically place a marshmallow in front of a kid and tell them, listen, if you resist this marshmallow for like five minutes, you get two. And, and kids have massive, massive trouble. Uh, most kids have a huge trouble resisting a marshmallow for five minutes. Hmm. 
And and that is it is related to that, right? Because obviously you can say, well, five minutes is not that long, and two marshmallows is twice as much as, as one. Why wouldn't I say no? You know, why would I say no to this deal? This is a great deal. But your brain is like, dude, it's right here. <laughs> <laughs> Eat it now. <laughs> yeah. So and then um another one that's really interesting is called the availability heuristic, which is simply that things that are easier to remember or easier to imagine stand out in our minds and seem more important or more common. So a, a great example of this is, you know, what do you think? Are there more words in the English language that start with the letter K or more words that have the letter K as in the third place as the third letter? Now, obviously, you know that this is a trick question, but the thing is, if you think about this, you will almost certainly come to the conclusion that there must be more words that start with the letter K than words that have a letter K in the third position. But actually there's like four times more words with K in the third position. It's just, you can't think of them, right? Because it's easy to think of words that start with K, but it's really difficult. We can kind of alphabetically, right? We go, oh, you know, it's easy to, to think of a word that starts with a letter, but to, to think of a word that has a letter in a certain other position, it's almost impossible. How do you even do that, right? Yeah, I was leaning more, way more towards what you said there. It's like the K at the first letter, because I was mm -hmm. trying to, <laughs> in my mind, I could tell I was trying to think of all these different words with the letter K as the third one. Mm -hmm. I was like, I, well, I can barely think of, can barely think of one on the yeah. spot right now. Just kind and of I, draw a blank, yeah. I was reluctant to say anything as well, because mm -hmm. I was like, hmm, <laughs> yeah. This, yeah, is, yeah. this is a trick question. Exactly, yeah. So, so the... <laughs> but but that's the thing, right? If if you try to think of letters, start with the word K, you can certainly think of some. Yeah. And K in the third position, you probably just draw a blank. You're just like, no idea. But it's because, so because the information about uh, starting with letter K is so much easier to recall, it just seems like, well, that must be more common. And so similarly, this is why people, for example, are afraid of shark attacks. They're afraid of being, you know, eaten by a shark, but they're not afraid of being killed by a cow, even though cows kill more people than sharks. This is true. Um, but the thing is, like, a shark attack, like, when you're on the beach, imagining a shark lurking below, below the water and, and attacking you, it's very easy to do. And the shark looks threatening and all this kind of stuff, right? And you've heard stories. You can recall stories. Ooh, and maybe it was a movie. Maybe it was made up. It's not a real story. But still, you can remember stories of people getting eaten by sharks pretty vicious. I've seen Jaws. Right. <laughs> I've seen that it's, movie. It's pretty vicious. It's pretty vivid imagery there. So that must be, that must be a real danger. That must be a real common problem. Right. But nobody's like, oh, cows. Cows are dangerous. <laughs> Someone needs to make a movie about that. <laughs> cows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then the final one, the final one is blind spot bias, which is viewing oneself as less prone to bias than other people, which Right now, this is me telling you, everybody thinks that about themselves. <laughs> Every single person alive, when they learn about biases, goes, well, I'm not as biased as other people. <laughs> Everyone thinks that, okay? I was thinking that earlier <laughs> in this podcast. I was like, wow, I'm learning this stuff. Yeah, that way I can be biasless. Yeah, so that is another bias. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> so why are we learning about this, right? Again, the context is you want to upgrade... You want to upgrade, level up mentally. You want to upgrade your brain power. Why does learning about biases matter? Well, here's the thing. Unless you understand how your mind is fallible, and again, I'm talking about your mind. I'm not talking about other people's minds, even though, yes, other people do this too, but what matters is that this is happening to you in your brain. Right now. Right now, this is happening. And 
um, the reason this is, so unless you are aware of the fallibility of your own mind, you are always easy to fool. And you're especially easy to fool by yourself, right? You are the easiest person to fool when you're the one doing the fooling. And learning about biases, in my opinion, is the best place to start building an understanding of your mind. Hmm. And it's also an important step for getting off the roller coaster that you were mentioning before. Because you have to get into a position where you can realize, oh, just because something comes from within my own mind doesn't mean that it's valid or important. Mm. And that also can make you less reactive. To just acknowledge this is just one of the things my mind does. It is constantly serving up false information. Constantly, reliably, systematically. And therefore, I, it's just not something to take that seriously. Mm. And I wonder, I wonder why. I wonder if that's partly why meditation can have a, I'm sure we're going to cover that in another podcast at some point. Meditation seems to have this beneficial impact on people, like lower, em, lower emotional reactivity. Because mm -hmm. one of the practices is that you, you, you meditate and you start to be able to see thoughts emerge and pass away exactly. and start to objective, objectively just observe them as happening rather than have a thought and believe it instantly and then try and defend it and then like all the emotional baggage that comes along with that. So, so that's one thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is it seems that, and maybe this does lead into the third, third point, because it seems that in order to, to want to even challenge these, or even become aware of biases in the first place, it seems to me that there needs to be a foundational desire for truth mm. um, at, the, at the core of that. Because it's like either truth, however unpleasant it may be, mm. versus just something that confirms my biases and makes me feel good. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that the, the, the desire for truth is like a prerequisite there. Like do, you do you want to know what's real? Do you, know, do you want to know the truth? Or do you want something that will just confirm your beliefs and make you feel good? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, and so both of the things are, I think are 100% correct, right? Meditation gives you that perspective of, oh, thoughts are just things that happen all the time, and mm. you're not the, as identified with it. Um, and also, when it, well, when it comes to truth, is like, this is why I think biases are the best place to start, is because that is, you have to learn about that before you get to question, before you get to ask that question, in a mm. way. Because you, you realize, oh, this is a lot of things that seem true to me and a lot of the ways in which I confirm things to be true have nothing to do with truth. And then you can start making that decision. Well, do I want to pursue truth or do I just, I mean, because you can live a biased life. It's no problem, right? Most people do it. Hmm. But it puts you in that position where you're like, oh, this is actually a decision I have to make. This is not just going to happen by itself. Hmm. Makes sense. And this also explains, right, you asked how come I was seeking out books that essentially showed the opposite perspective to what I was already confirming myself into believing. Yes. It's exactly because of that, because I'm, I'm reading all these things that all seem to confirm what I believe, and then I get skeptical. So I'm like, oh, this is what would happen if I made no effort at all. So that's not, that's not good. That's not a good sign, right? Um, so I do that to deliberately break out of my biases. Which brings us to the third point, which is mental models. So 
The third thing you can do to level up your mind, the third most important thing to do to level up your mind is to get familiar with and start using mental models. And the mental model is basically the system that you use to defeat biases. So like we've established, right, your, your brain is constantly biased and it can't be trusted essentially. And even knowing about biases doesn't help. That doesn't solve the problem. So what you need is you need to deploy specific tools in order to counter your bias. And that's what a mental model is. And to this, I also, also want to say, you know, that the, if you look for definitions of mental models, like a lot of people seem to have slightly different definitions of what it is. So let me just clarify what to me a mental model is. It is any thinking strategy that you deliberately deploy in a specific situation. So you say, okay, here's a specific kind of decision I want to make, and I'm going to deploy a, a tool for how to think about this. Or here's a specific problem I want to solve, and I'm going to deploy a specific problem-solving tool for this. Mm. And that is the most important thing, is that you deliberately deploy a system. Because what we do otherwise is, you know, we go, oh, here's this problem. How do we solve it? And what you do, you kind of follow your intuition. You follow the thoughts that bubble up in your mind, which are biased to all hell, right? And so you have to not do that and instead be like, okay, I know that if I just sit here and think about this, it's going to be a disaster. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to apply this specific tool. And again, let's do uh, just a couple of examples of what does a mental model look like. Let's start with one of the easiest ones, which is the idea of inversion or uh, process of elimination. So instead of thinking something like, okay, I have a goal. I want to reach some kind of a goal. How do I reach this goal? What can I do to reach this goal? That can sometimes be kind of difficult and overwhelming to think about. And, and often it can also be, it can be narrow. So how can you find better answers? Well, one way is just to invert the question. Be like, well, how would I prevent myself from reaching this goal? Mm. Right? What would be an effective way to sabotage my progress towards this goal? And that can often give us one greater clarity, but also it can, it can show us important answers that we wouldn't have thought of if we hadn't inverted the question. Mm. And it's very simple, right? And a, a similar approach is uh, using a process of elimination. So if you have, if you say, okay, how do I set a, a top priority, you know? What, are, what should I focus on? What are the most important priorities? It's kind of difficult to think of. Well, one way to, to solve this or one way, an approach that's useful to take is just list everything that you think is important and then start eliminating. So instead of building the list from scratch, you make a list and you start knocking things off the list until only the most important stuff remains. Mm, I like that. So, and that's, so that's one of the simplest examples of a, of a mental model. A slightly more complex one is uh, using Bayesian probabilities. And Bayesian probabilities, so um, we'll link to a great uh, video on this to get like a, a visual example of what Bayes' theorem is uh, by a channel called 3Blue1Brown or something like that. Really good example of this. But in practical terms, um, using, you can deploy Bayesian probability and it basically goes like this. In order to make some kind of a prediction of a future outcome, what you want to do is you want to get a baseline or a base value and then adjust the baseline uh, with, with new information. So let me give you an example from, from a business perspective, right? So let's say I am launching a new product and the last product launch didn't go so well. 
and I go, well, I hope this one goes better. That's not a great strategy, right? Right away, it's like, okay, well, yeah, you hope it goes better, but is it going to go better? Of course you do. <laughs> so you want to be, be able to make some kind of prediction, well, is this going to go better? And, and what can we do to make this go better? And not just like hope for it. Now, the, the wrong way to do this is to just be optimistic and we'll try extra hard and that's why it's going to go better. No. What you want to do is one, grab a baseline. So your baseline is a, a past performance. And in this case, it's very easy. Well, what did the last product launch do? That's our baseline. That's that we will start reasoning from there instead of just optimistically saying, oh, I bet we'll make at least 10,000 sales. Like, where does that come from? You just want that to be true, right? But if, Made that up. Yeah, but if, if, your last, if your last product launch, you made a thousand sales, that's your baseline, okay? That you can start reasoning from there. And then from there, you can ask yourself, well, what are we doing differently? You can say, well, we're, you know, we have uh, whatever, we've increased our ad budget by such and such amount. We've increased our ad budget by 20%. How much is this going to affect this launch? Is it going to double the sales? Well, probably not, right? Mm. I can take the baseline and bump it up by 20%. That's reasonable, okay? And we can say, well, okay, we're doing, you know, we're doing more of this kind of marketing. And again, you can ask yourself, what's this going to do? Is this going to double our sales? Is this going to bump the value up by 10% or whatever? But also, and then also be realistic. Well, you know, because last launch didn't go well, we had to fire half of our marketing department. Um, so we have to adjust the baseline downwards from that, realistically. Oh, yeah. right? And again, it's simply, even if you're, you're, con you're just guessing, you're just guessing, but a series of guesses, a series of informed guesses like that will get you often surprisingly close to the correct answer. And whereas kind of going by your gut feeling or hoping you can be orders of magnitude off of the correct answer. Hmm. And so this is a, a very specific, and this is especially that first step is going, what is my baseline? What am I reasoning from? That can make a huge difference. So that would be Bayesian probability. And then we've already mentioned the sunk cost fallacy, right? Where a typical mistake is where people will keep investing in something just because they've already invested in it. And for this, you can, you can use the revolving doors mental model, which is like, imagine that whatever the situation is, imagine that you just walked in on this as a completely new person. Mm. So in a, in a, for, again, for a business decision, it's like, imagine that you were just hired as the new CEO or the new manager or whatever. You don't know any of the people who work here. You have, you have no attachment to the work that's already been done. Look at the situation and make a decision, right? Because if you're looking at it from your perspective, you go, well, we've tried so hard. We've worked so hard on this. We've spent so, money, so much money on this and so on. But if, you're, if you've just been hired, you look at it and go, wow, you guys have been wasting your time for the last two years. Mm. Uh, let's stop doing that, <laughs> you know? you don't care you're not attached right and the same um or kind of a similar aspect so this is this is very useful for kind of strategic decisions you know entrepreneurial decisions this kind of thing a kind of similar approach or a similar effect that you can do for personal decisions is um is basically think about what if what if you'd have to advise a friend mm. so you're struggling with some issue and and you're your ability to make good decisions about that issue is limited by how close you are to the problem, right? Because you're you and you've been suffering from this problem and so on. But if you ask yourself, what if a good friend of mine came to me with this exact problem 
What would I advise them to do? So, you know, whatever that is, you know, someone's like tortured about, you know, they're, they're stuck in a difficult relationship or something and they're like, oh, should I leave or should I try this or should I try that? Often, if you take the perspective of what, what if my friend came to me and told me exactly this, they t he told me, listen, this is my relationship situation. This is what's been going on. This is how I feel about it, etc. What should I do? Often, you'll just immediately know what needs to be done. So, and that's a similar effect. You remove yourself deliberately from the, you know, from all the emotional ties and whatnot to see things more clearly. Hmm. So those are some examples of mental models and how you can use them. And like I said, this goes very much in like you, you start studying biases and you go, oh my God, I can't trust anything my brain produces. How do I solve this? And the, the solution is mental models. And to some, some jumping, off, jumping off points for this, there's a book called The Great Mental Models by Shane Parrish, who also has the, the Knowledge Project podcast, which is a great listen. And that is, so it's actually a series of books that kind of just try to create an index of mental models, essentially. And then there's another one called Super Thinking by Gabriel Weinberg and Lauren McCann, which is also kind of a compendium of mental models. Those are good places to, to start. And the other thing is start looking for when you listen to podcasts, when you listen to, when you read books, when you read uh, biographies and things like that, start looking for mental models that people use because people often like they will tell you about them without realizing that that's essentially what they're doing, right? Yeah. Or you can derive mental models from, from the advice that you get. So that's it. That's my, that's my spiel on the three things. So read books, uh, learn about biases, and learn about and start using mental models. Wonderful. All right. So as, as always, right, this is we can and probably will dig in a lot deeper into many of these topics, but this is where to start. This is where to start. And it's as everything in this series, it's the kind of thing where if you make even a pretty minimal investment into these things, I think you might be astonished at how much changes your life. Hmm. Sounds good. That's, uh, that's it. Is All that right. everything? I, th I think so. I think so. So that is episode four. Uh, the show notes for this are at ikario.com forward slash zero zero four and you can follow us on youtube and you can you know subscribe to the newsletter at ikaria.com and you can do all kinds of other stuff but basically just go to ikaria.com and you know consume all the things all the things <laughs> <laughs> all right all right see you in the next one see you in the next one <laughs>